0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz
1: every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.
2: Sunday, July 10th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. An American basketball star pleads guilty in Russia, but the Biden administration is trying to end what it says is an unjustified detention of Brittany Griner. And she is in intolerable circumstances right now, and we are going to do everything that we can. Uh, The president has this top of
1: mind. I'm Jessica Rosenthal, a Supreme Court decision overturning Roe and inflation, two huge issues heading into midterms. But is either one more pressing to the coveted voting bloc known as suburban women?
0: The suburbs has become the battleground of America.
2: This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington.
3: Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go to home services.
2: For months, Americans have been warned to leave Russia by the State Department, but some can't leave because they've been detained, jailed by Moscow courts. WNBA star Brittany Griner is one of those cases. Her detention has become a top focus for President Biden after receiving a letter from Griner and speaking on the phone with the Phoenix Mercury player's wife. We believe that the Russian Federation is holding, uh, is wrongfully, has wrongfully detained Brittany Griner, and she is in intolerable circumstances right now. And we are going to do everything that we can. Uh, The president has this top of mind. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the administration is also working to free another American, Paul Whalen, who has been accused by Russia of espionage. Both cases are highlighting the vulnerability Americans have faced in places like Russia as diplomatic relations are strained. Fox News correspondent Lucas Tomlinson is in Lviv, Ukraine, following this story and the ongoing war. He shares his reporting
4: on both. Well, first of all, when there's a 99% conviction rate in Russia, it doesn't really leave you a lot of choice if you're a defendant sitting in a Russian courtroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, she really had no choice to then to plead guilty. Uh, she was uh, detained at the airport coming back. She played for a Russian uh, women's basketball team mm-hmm. in the offseason. Of course, she's a WNBA star, two-time Olympic gold medalist. She was on her way back to Russia Uh, On February 17th, it's notable that it was before the Russia's full scale invasion Mm -hmm. of Ukraine, though, Uh,
2: after the the troop buildup, after sort of in that time where the United States, the Biden administration was warning this could happen.
4: Correct. Correct. Uh, Officials say it might not have been the best time to be for any American citizen, let alone uh, an American women's basketball star to be going into russia in fact the state department as you point out for weeks had been calling on americans to leave russia not to go mm-hmm. into Russia, uh, but it is notable that she arrived before Russia launched this full-scale invasion. Uh, it's notable the date because uh, people, uh, not long after she was detained, were immediately worried that this might be another potential, you know, Paul Whelan situation where, yeah. uh, whether it's Russia, whether it's Iran, you know, when Americans get detained, there a lot of times they're used as pawns. They're used uh, to try to spring uh other people out of jail and that's what what some of the concern is now is you know there's this merchant of death uh, a a russian and ex-soviet arms dealer named victor bout who has been sitting in an american jail cell and serving a 25-year sentence there's talk that that might be the next step the u.s state department the white house is saying let's let this trial uh you know begin you know it, it has already started but let's let's see what happens in the trial that's supposed to be wrapped up in early August, uh, but certainly the concern is, number one, uh, the, the sentence uh, being caught with uh, uh, you know, a vial with uh, cannabis oil. She faces about a 10-year sentence. Uh, the concern is, of course, that, that she'll be, have to do uh, some time because of that. She's already been detained, of course, since February, that's you know uh, over four months ago. And uh, certainly complicates things uh, for Biden administration with a lot on its plate.
2: Well, you mentioned the uh, potential prisoner swap, and we saw that happen a few months ago with Trevor Reed, who was a, a mm-hmm. former U.S. Marine who had been uh, detained in Russia um, for a couple of years, um, and he was sent back uh, with a Russian who had been held in American prison uh, back to Russia. We, we sort of talk about how like that—that's not the way that we do hostage negotiations, right? But this, I guess being viewed a little bit different
4: it has and and Brittany griner's coach has already said if this was lebron james he would have been out by now so there's a lot of irate people in america particularly among the black community who Mm. are saying hey like this has been on the back burner for way too long uh and typically uh with these kind of hostage uh, detainee situations things usually are quiet in the beginning because there's hopeful you know families yeah, the are idea told, is like maybe if US you don't get as much told, publicity
2: it's exactly. easier to kind of negotiate Yeah,
4: work behind the scenes there's no question but he, you know of course you saw uh this, this strongly worded letter from the family president mm-hmm. biden this week talked to uh miss Griner's wife mm-hmm. and you know the is certainly getting a lot more publicity and then certainly as you know we look at this this conflict in ukraine certainly uh, Brittany britney it just appears to be a, another pawn in this game
2: and it, you brought up another name paul whalen his family is now saying listen how come he's not getting the same he's been in russia longer he's been detained in russia longer Um, He, again, Mm -hmm. is a former military, somebody who is facing charges that the U.S. says are completely unjustified. How do you kind of then, you know, is there a priority list? How how does the U.S. and the administration kind of do you deal with them sort of together? Are they one issue? Are they separate issues?
4: Well, certainly Wayland's family wants this to be one issue, because after President Biden spoke to Brittany Griner's wife, they were saying, Hey, where's our phone call? Where, where's, right. you know, uh, you know, our son. And, and so, uh, you know, of course, uh, Paul Whelan is serving a much more serious uh, uh, charge. You know, he's serving a 16 year sentence for espionage. For an that's certainly right. for an espionage. That's certainly bigger than a simple uh, a drug possession charge uh, in terms of uh, Miss Griner's case, where it was, uh, you know, cannabis oil, uh, yeah. you know, so uh, that she claims, you know, she was, her lawyers through her lawyers saying, you know, she packed quickly. She was, you know, I believe on her way to Russia actually, and um, to, to plan this off season, you know, basketball league. And so, uh, she said it, it all happened rather quickly, wasn't thinking. And and so certainly the, the Whalen situation is, is much more serious. But of course, his family doesn't want him to be forgotten and wants to potentially, hey, if, if the Biden administration is going to go into kind of a hostage negotiation type situation, because that's the level where it's it's being handled right now. Could there be a you know, package deal, especially after this, you know, merchant of death, uh, his ex-Soviet arms dealers, you know, in a, serving a 25 year sentence in the United States? If we're talking about springing potentially or having a deal, perhaps that would uh, you know make it more equal, some might say.
2: I'm curious, sort of in the broader context, what the diplomatic exchanges are between the United States and the Russian Federation. I mean, there's been pretty much a cutoff of of formal diplomatic ties uh, since the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, So, uh, you know, how does this work? Does this reach to the level of the Secretary of State and and Sergey Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia? Does this work sort of at a third party country that kind of handles it like we have with Iran? What are the diplomatic ties right now between the U.S. and Russia?
4: Well, the US maintains an embassy in Moscow, so unlike Uh, You know, talks with the Iranians where the U.S. does not maintain diplomatic relations Mm -hmm. with Iran. There is no U.S. embassy in Iran, of course, abandoned years ago. Uh, There could be talks going on right now in Russia between the U.S. ambassador. The uh, deputy chief of mission has already uh, been quoted in the press saying this is, you know, one of the highest level uh, talks and priorities for the U.S. government, certainly in Russia right now. Ah, uh, so so talks are happening. Of course, when you mentioned uh, Secretary of State Blinken and Sergey Lavrov, they're both together in, in Bali at the at the G twenty right now. Mm. The twenty richest nations yeah. in uh, the world are meeting right now. So the potential for some kind of pull aside. Or diplomatic notes to be exchanged that could definitely be happening and certainly it's these kind of, of of events where you know a lot of business is conducted and so i'm sure it'll come up
2: let's talk about one other issue um because you are in uh ukraine um where the invasion the war continues um has there been any progress made in trying to free up some of this grain some of this food that has been essentially blocked i guess
4: by the russians Sure. Well, you know, Ukrainians you speak to here are wondering, where's the U.S. Navy? Where's NATO? Uh, This grain, as you mentioned, uh, is being held hostage. Speaking of hostages, uh, Mm. we're talking about food shortages on the African continent uh, Mm. throughout the world. Uh, Obviously, Russia, Ukraine are major grain exporters. And right now, Ukraine's largest port of Odessa, the third largest city, uh, not only are the the ships, you know, sitting in port and the grain sitting there, uh, you know, potentially rotting the longer it sits there, but, uh, you know, these, these are heavily mined ports and not just from the Russians, but the Ukrainians as well. So it's, you know, not quite as simple as just ordering an armada in there. But the fact that the Biden administration refuses to even uh, go in there, some officials uh, certainly in, in in here on the continent of Europe are wondering why not. And certainly the British uh, are probably taking the most aggressive stance out of all the NATO allies, Uh, you know, Boris Johnson is one of the few NATO leaders who talks openly about not just defeating the Russians, but rolling back their gains in Ukraine to kick them out of Crimea, Mm. kick them out of Donbass. You just don't hear that language in Washington. You don't hear it from the White House. Uh, The talk among uh, G7 leaders recently in the Bavarian Alps was the support will continue. You hear a lot more about support, not as much about Russia being defeated.
2: You know, and to that point, is one of the concerns as it relates to kind of that naval engagement that, that it is similar to a no fly in the sense that once you do that, it has to be enforced, and then you sort of have increased the, the, the calculation that there could be a direct exchange between U.S. forces and Russian forces?
4: There's no question, Jared, that's a sensitive subject. It's not as easy as just showing up in the Bosphorus, going into the Black yeah. Sea with a NATO I mean, because you have a to the blockade, right? Of course. But also, no, any kind of potential mission like that would be coordinated long in advance, not just with a NATO ally like Turkey, because you're not crossing the Bosphorus without permission. Uh, yeah. not against the Montreux Convention and <laughs> diplomatic speak. But there's no question that us diplomats in moscow would have to meet their russian counterparts and be very explicit and say this is what we have planned this is what's going to happen we will not open fire you don't open fire at us but officials say of course this is very complicated and there's a lot of nervous allies that don't want to go that far in fact in the pentagon Uh, You know, weeks ago, this subject came up at a press briefing, and uh, it was dismissed quickly by the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff.
2: Finally, since you are in um, western uh, Ukraine, and I know much of the the war has sort of moved to the east, but but what is life like in Lviv? What is life like now um, in Ukraine, uh, what, four or five months into this?
4: Well, certainly when you're in the western part of Ukraine, you certainly don't feel like it's a a nation at war. You, You do pass... Uh, you know, sandbag checkpoints. Mm-hmm. Some of them aren't manned as much as they were when I was here four months ago. But you certainly get a sense talking to people, just being on the street, asking people where are they from, how they get here. And I spoke to one young man who fled Kharkiv. He's a, commuter, a computer programmer. Uh, he fled. He's here. He says he's still scared. He says that whenever he hears a loud bang, boom, any kind of construction equipment, he immediately thinks about being shelled by the Russians. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's certainly no escaping the war. Uh, There are still trains that are bringing evacuees from the eastern part of the country. And and what's very sobering, Jared, is make no mistakes, the Russians appear to be winning in the east. Today they control 20% of Ukraine. That's more than they controlled at the onset of the invasion. So while the Ukrainian forces... Uh, defeated a Russian onslaught and assault from the north through Belarus to protect the capital. And the Ukrainian army is standing strong, fighting hard. The president, uh, of course, is, is standing strong. You hear his messages frequently on social media and to his country. Uh, make no mistake, uh, the east is is a long slog. It's an artillery battle. And you know for the Russians, they're not backing down and when you look at a map you see you know you don't need you know fedex or ups or top logistics to be able to get artillery to get rounds to to you know fight a war in the east and they're gaining they're paying a price for it there's no question they've lost about 30 percent of their forces that invaded the country but make no mistake they've made tremendous gains in the east and when you look at a map they control uh crimea all the way through uh, you know Luhansk and a major part of eastern Ukraine. And if they solidify those gains, you know, this is essentially the rust belt of, of Ukraine, if you will. And they're big gains. And uh, it just doesn't appear right now that the Ukrainian forces have what they need to launch any kind of uh, counter assault. Uh, there's really not much talk about pushing back. Uh, getting the Russians out of Crimea, getting them out of Donbass. they're certainly fighting hard in parts of southern Ukraine, parts of Eastern Ukraine, but uh, right now the Russians are, are firmly in control in the East. But uh, of course, when you you know as we learned, we just you know, celebrated July 4th in the United States. As long as Washington had his army, he was not going to be defeated by the British and certainly we're seeing something very similar uh, in Ukraine. And that is, as long as Zelensky is president, as long as Ukraine maintains an army, you can't lose. The Russians might take some cities in the east, but just like the British, you know, they controlled Philadelphia, New York, uh, various other cities at a point during the war. As long as Washington had his army, they couldn't be defeated. And in fact, Washington wore out the British. Uh, I think the parallels in some ways are similar. Uh, in terms of as long as the Ukrainians can hold, they certainly will not be defeated. the The big question is how much longer is is the West going to support? Uh, it's the summertime right now, but certainly as we roll into the fall, the winter, and especially if if you know gas prices t- you know are still astronomically high. And certainly uh, inflation being a a global problem, not just the United States, but many uh, European countries, certainly they're experiencing high gas prices as well. You you just have to wonder, will the will of the people be there to continue to support this war? Uh, Because the Ukrainians need more weaponry. There's no question. Like right now, they have what it takes to not lose, but they don't have what it takes to completely defeat the Russians right now.
2: It's a good point, uh, Lucas. It's important reporting that you're doing. Uh, Stay safe, please, as you uh, continue your reporting uh, from Ukraine. We will talk soon.
1: After each election, we look to see which candidates in which party did well or not so well, in which group. And some candidates, even those who don't trust the polls, reach out to those groups before Election Day.
3: So can
0: I ask you to do me a favor? Suburban women, Will you please like me?
1: That was President Trump just three weeks before the 2020 election at a rally in Pennsylvania. Suburban women, a smaller subset of the coveted suburban voter. They're so valued, namely because according to analysts and pollsters, many of them are also considered swing voters. They went Republican in 2014. Republican by a hair in 2016, and then shifted to Democrats in 2018 and 2020. The suburbs then may well be their own bellwether. And some Republicans think
3: the burbs are shifting back to them. People will remember that in 1996, we had soccer moms. 2004, we had security moms. Now you say we have school board moms. How big is this voting constituency and how mad are they?
2: Uh, I think it's enormous. Uh, and I think, again, just like the Democrats missed the rise of Trump, they are missing
1: uh, the groundswell that's happening, the grassroots groundswell that's happening among these school board moms. That was Fox News anchor John Roberts talking to columnist and former speechwriter for President George W. Bush, Mark Thiessen, last fall. But. Even as suburban voters, like many others, are frustrated by education issues and, of course, inflation, many of those suburban women are also motivated by the Supreme Court's decision to overturn the right to an abortion. A Marist poll conducted after the ruling found 74 percent of women who live in suburbs or smaller cities said they were more likely to vote now in midterms, making them more motivated than other voters by 12 points, with roughly two out of three saying they oppose the court's decision.
0: This is America in 2022.
1: Arnon Mishkin is director of the Fox News Decision Desk.
0: Which is that we have migrated to live with people who think like us, who spend money like us, and who vote like us and agree with us. And we don't live near people who disagree with us, who will debate with or or whatnot. And that is true um, in rural America. It's true in urban America. And it's particularly true in suburban America. And so, yes, there are slightly more red suburbs that are more Republican and there's are slightly more um, blue uh, suburbs that are Democratic. But in essence, the, the suburbs is has become the battleground of America. And I know that that Mitch McConnell, um, when he was talking about why it was in the Republicans interest to make a deal on guns with the Democrats, he said, you know, Republicans do really, really well in rural America and small town America. We own those areas. Um, they are Republican areas. The Democrats own the urban areas. Um, and the, the, what we need to do and what, where, where we've been weak in both 2018 and 2020, 2020 um, was in the suburbs. And so they needed to figure out a way to shore up support amongst uh, independent voters in, in the suburban areas. And um, you know the mental picture of a suburban uh, home is is one where one or both parents commute to work in an urban area. Um, although during COVID, one or mo- both parents fight over the internet in the in the home as to who gets to do their Zoom meetings. Um, they drive their kids to school if the school is open, and they drive their sk- kids to soccer or um, ballet school or, or whatnot uh, in the afternoon. Um, and and they think about things slightly differently than um, uh, rural America and urban America because they think much more clearly um, because it's much more the, the life of sort of what is the, the economic impact of the family, what's the social impact of, of many regulations and the like, and I think they're less um divided based on things like urban uh, but on gun gun issues um which i think is a very clear dividing line between rural america where guns are seen as, as a way of life and an essential tool um uh, for every, anything from self-defense to hunting and urban america where guns are seen as sort of a threat um and in suburban america that's it's they're much more in between and on issues such as abortion um, uh, we know that they are slightly more willing to be pro-choice or belie- much more willing to sort of accept the idea that abortion should be legal in many or most cases than people in urban America or, or rural America, and rural America in particular, they're more likely to, to believe uh, abortion should be illegal. Um, has- we also know that urban, the uh, suburban voters tend to be swing voters. Um, in 2014, which was a solid Republican win, a real red wave, um, uh, urban, uh, suburban America voted 60% for the Republican ticket. And in, um, uh, in um, 2018, which was a blue wave, the, the Trump uh, midterm election, um, uh, suburban America voted 60% for the Democrats. So a, a basically almost a 20-point swing. And amongst women and both women and men swung by uh, roughly 10 or 20 points. Um, it's a, it was a huge swing in their votes, um, from red to blue, a much greater swing than most other parts of the country. That's where the districts turned over, um, from blue to red in the case of 2014 and back from red to blue in the case of 2018. In 2020, um, a lot of those areas, the Republicans did really, really well. And if you look, you know, sort of cut the data underneath, the Republicans did really, really well because a lot of voters sort of didn't like the Democratic program, but they also didn't like Donald Trump. And so in many districts that Trump lost, the Democrats lost the district, even though they um, uh, Biden may have carried the district, but the Democratic House candidate uh, lost the district. So those so- are areas that are, are really the sort of areas that are up for grabs in, in November.
1: Arnon, when somebody like you is trying to figure out who is a suburban voter and how they voted, you're literally at, at counties. You're, you're looking at actual geographic locations.
0: We're looking at geographic locations. And another thing that we do in our poll, which is we ask people, where do you live? Because in a lot of counties um, I, I, that are defined by the Census Bureau as suburban counties, if you drive through them, one part of it is a uh, a real urban area. One part of it is a suburban area. And and a a, a large part of it could be considered rural. Um, I mean, Westchester County, in, in uh, north of New York City, um, is a district which has some real urban areas. Um, it also has some areas of suburbs, single family homes, and the like. And it even has some areas, the very wealthy parts, that you'd have to ca- characterize as, as uh, rural. Um, similarly, Maricopa County, which I think is characterized as an urban area, if you drive through it, a large part of it is suburban and a, a huge portion is really rural America. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things we do is we just ask people, "Where do you live?"
1: What about how things have changed for the suburban voter? Because I was looking at some of the twenty twenty census findings, for example, and and they say like uh, metro areas, for example, which does include the suburbs, have grown by nine percent, um, but yet counties, fifty two percent of counties, have seen a decline in their population. Um, when we talk about the race of the suburbs what what sort of uh, the suburbs are made up of um the census tells us in 2020 that the white population has declined by 8.6 percent and those who identify as multiracial went from 9 million in 2010 to nearly 34 million people in 2020. when you sort of consider what is a suburban voter is it more diverse now are there fewer suburban voters than 10 years ago
0: Um, I think there are more suburban voters. I mean, uh, keep in mind, um, I think in the last census, 55 percent, and that was a growth of people lived in what we call suburban areas. Fifty five percent of America lived in the suburbs. Um, I think the numbers by the time of the 2030 census could easily be up to 60 percent, given current trends. Um, And I think that that what you're seeing is as um, minority groups get more affluent, as mixed um, mixed families get more affluent, um, they tend to move from urban areas to suburban areas. Um, and I think that, that what you're seeing is the sort of continued importance of the suburban area to to what America is. Um, and the reason so many counties have been losing population is because, um, you know, the vast bulk of the country on a square acreage perspective or square mileage perspective is rural. Um, And those are the areas that are declining, but they have a lot of a lot of counties in those areas. And so those are the counties that are declining in population. Um, You know, we'll find out what the impact of the growth of broadband is going to be.
1: Oh, interesting. Um, You you kind of already referenced it, but are these voters, like you said, these are more independent voters. So, right, we're calling them we're labeling them suburban voters rather than working class or urban or rural or even evangelical are, are suburban voters fueled by family issues because they're raising children and sort of pocketbook issues like what they can afford for this family?
0: I, I think absolutely. I think that that, that the suburban voter is um, they are the voters who, first of all, they drive more than urban voters. So they're seeing the cost of gas at the pump. Um, mm. They um, probably shop less frequently, but with larger Um, but get a carload full. (laughs) And so they're noticing the impact um, of of, of inflation at the grocery bill. Um, But also they they will wrestle with, you know, issues, social issues, um, particularly the uh, issue, I think, of abortion, um, which may or may not become be a very important issue in November. We don't yet know. Um, We have seen some indications that um, that the court decision in Dobbs and the um, overturning of Roe versus Wade is sort of energizing Democratic voters right now. Um, so and, we and, know that and there What was,
1: about is it energizing? Arnott, is it energizing female voters?
0: Uh, I haven't seen data, but I would imagine you will see that there will be some energizing of that i think that you know one of the realities of american politics since roe is that voters who were pro-choice felt that their position was basically safe um, that that abortion was going to be legal in most cases and therefore they were going to choose they chose their candidates based on other issues and voters who were more pro-life um, who, were, who were opposed to the Roe versus Wade decision thought they, that, that that was the reason they went to the polls. They wanted to vote for candidates, particularly Senate candidates, who would um, uh, confirm judges that were opposed to Roe or be willing to overturn Roe. And they would, were voting for state and local um, officials who would pursue laws that um, would make abortion harder harder to to, to have and make, you know, make it more illegal in most cases, in many cases. And what the, the battlefield during the Roe era was on things like late-term abortion. And should we, should we make late-term abortion, which tends to have a really ugly medical procedure, I'm not a doctor, but a pretty ugly medical procedure, making those things illegal? That, um, that the, the battle was fought on that territory. And, and that territory, by the way, is favorable to the pro-life side, because then you know when you ask people about abortion, nobody is purely pro-choice, and very few people are purely pro-choice up to the point of um, birth, and very few people are pro are totally pro-life from the point of conception. Um, that's that's a minority view. Most people have a much more complicated view. and And so and when you look at the polling, if you ask about late term abortions, that's really unpopular. Making that illegal is really popular. If you ask about abortions in the first trimester, that's something that's much more uh, accepted by the population. Um, Many more people think that should be legal in that that case. And and so I think one of the impacts of the Dodd decision is now the battlefield is not going to be on should late term abortions be illegal. But what about first term abortions? And in that, uh, the Republicans have a bigger challenge uh, or the pro-life side have a bigger challenge because um, that's where many Americans, I'd say a majority of Americans, according to every polling I've seen, thinks that those abortions are OK. Um, and so if the battlefield is there, that's going to that that'll pose a challenge. On the other hand, if people are spending 70 bucks to uh, fill up their tank in, uh, the day before Election Day, that's not good for the Democrats.
1: We heard a lot about suburban voters when Glenn Youngkin won uh, as uh, governor of Virginia, the Republican. Uh, I think mostly because northern Virginia is the D.C. suburbs. Um, But we heard a lot ahead of that from parents in northern Virginia, places like Loudoun County. People were packing into those, you know, education board meetings. Did we glean anything from that election as we head into midterms, as we look at the suburban women voting block?
0: I think that... Um, That election was a textbook election for how Republicans need to to run in a um, post-Trump era. Um, It was, you know, without Trump on the ballot Um, and focused on issues of great concern to families, um, issues such as what's going to happen with their kids' education. I think parents have a great interest in what goes on in the classroom. They they feel as though, you know, that's where they give up Johnny or Jill to the teacher for the first time at age five or, or, or earlier um, to go to kindergarten or nursery school. And they don't know right. what the teacher doing in there. And so that's a that's a case where they're they're really concerned. And I think the Democrats have behaved really foolishly in terms of how they have been saying it's none of the parents' business. Heck no. It's of course it's the parents' business, what goes on in the classroom. And I think the Republicans in, in Virginia were really able to do that um and i think they were also able in the case of glenn youngkin i think he did a good a very good job of um threading the needle on the abortion question suggesting to um you know v- very pro life voters particularly in rural virginia that he was going to pursue um restrictions on abortion and um sort of soft uh soft peddling that um with more suburban voters but he did a great job of focusing on education and i think the Democrats have sort of done a, you know, they've they've sort of built a road map for the Republicans by by how they've, uh, you know, sort of uh, supported many restrictions during covid and the like, which clearly has um, had an impact on children and an impact that everyone notices when their kid is supposedly doing Zoom school. Um, but they know they're not.
1: Finally, Arnon, <clears throat> What are your thoughts heading into midterms about some some of the specific seats? Like if we look at, um, you know, in Virginia, for example, we're just talking about Virginia, right? Um, two seats held by Democratic women, uh, Abigail Spanberger and Elaine Luria. Uh, they're held by they're held by women, Democrats, but those seats are considered toss ups. When you hear that. And we're heading into a, a time where everybody's talking about this expected Republican red wave. Um, when you look at some of these toss ups held by Democratic women, what is your sense? Have things shifted? Are we going to see different ratings, different power rankings for, for these seats because of uh, because of Roe? Or is inflation just dominating? Is infl- if inflation keeps up at this pace, will that sort of dominate the conversation and these toss ups remain where they are?
0: So I shouldn't say this. I would not look that carefully at polling Um, for at least four weeks after the Dodd decision or two weeks after the Dodd decision. um, I think the the immediate impact of Dodd was to energize Democrats, energize the pro-choice group. But some of that's going to decline over time as the decision, uh, you know, get as people start living with the decision and realize whether or not they live in, in in a state where abortion is going to get harder to come by or isn't going to change. And, and so it, that the initial anger may uh, abate a bit. Um, and so I wouldn't look at the polling that's going on instantly. I would say that the initial signs are that there was a, a considerable um, uh, anger that that came up amongst the Democratic voter, which which you saw across the country. You saw it in the polling. You saw it in in a in a race that we know is going to be won by the Republicans. We know as well as we can, um, which is uh, Nebraska won. Uh, that we had a special election uh, about two weeks ago, and um, the Republican candidate won by six points. But that's a district Trump carried by eleven points. And if oh. if <laughs> If Republicans do five points worse than they're supposed to do across the nation, that is not good for the Republicans. I think that's probably not going to stay as stable. Um, not The anger is going to dissipate a bit, um, and we're going to have to see. And we're going to have to see as we get closer to November uh, how this shakes out. The other thing we're going to have to see is what's going to be the impact, what is going to happen with inflation. If inflation continues as, as it's been continuing, nothing the Democrats say is going to matter. Um, If someone just spent 70 bucks filling their tank um, on Monday, they're not voting Republican and they're not voting Democrat on Tuesday. Um, If they spent three hundred dollars getting a a week's groceries, they're not voting uh, that way. They're not voting, going to vote for the Democrats. That's going to dictate their vote. On the other hand, you know, there's some signs that inflation may be uh, changing. Um, We don't know. Um, but as of now, inflation is a really big issue. It's sort of been eclipsed a bit because of the, the focus on the, the Dodd decision. Um, but, uh, you know, time will tell.
1: Arnon Michigan. thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
2: That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, the January 6th committee investigating the causes of last year's deadly Capitol riot is set to hold two more hearings focusing on what it says was a scheme by former President Trump to overturn the 2020 election. We'll review that testimony. And President Biden departs for a major Mideast trip, with stops in Israel and the West Bank before attending a summit in Saudi Arabia with leading oil-producing nations. Will it lead to any new agreement on increasing global supplies and bring down gas prices in this country? Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay in touch with those you care about. For all of us at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington